go ahead and take your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 is where we are this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to read to you an account, uh, a story of a life house, or a lighthouse that was uh, saving people. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was a small little hut. There was only one boat, and there were only a few sailors. But they didn't think of themselves. They were very selfless, and so day and night would jump into the water and would rescue the drowning sailors that were there. Many lives were saved by this little life-saving station, so it became very famous on the East Coast. Others in the surrounding neighborhood and community wanted to be associated with it, so they decided, let's join the movement, let's jump in with what they're doing, let's help save lives. They started giving money to this little life-saving station. They started building new boats and buying new equipment and training new sailors, and the life station grew. Some of the new members of the station that came later thought that the hut was too small, too crude, and so they set out to build a bigger one next to it. The emergency cots that were inside of the life house were traded for beds, and the whole place was decorated beautifully. It became a a place of social gathering, a, a club, a social club, where few of the members even wanted to go back out to the sea and help save lives. So the original members decided they had to do something. While they were thinking of what they would do, the other Club members decided to just hire people to go out into the waters to save people because they themselves didn't want to do it. One day, the crew that was the original crew of sailors managed to save an enormous amount of people who were drowning off the coast. They brought them all into the house. They were trying to administer CPR and keep them alive. But those in the social club, added later to the social club, said, why are you bringing them here? It's a little distracting for all of the fun that we're having. Why don't you put them somewhere else? And so they built a back house for the emergencies that were going on. Soon, those in the social club decided, we don't even want to be a part of taking care of these lost lives of people who are drowning out in the sea. The original members said, no, that's what the whole purpose of our lifehouse was. It was for the purpose of saving And they said, if that's the case, we are the greater majority, you're in the minority, so go build your own. So they went up the road, and they built their own new life-saving station. And if you visit the seacoast today, where this occurred, you'll find a number of country clubs and social clubs strung out along the coastline that originally began as life-saving stations and deteriorated and turned into just a place to hang out. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people who go down die. Churches can be like this. Clubs can be like this. Social clubs. I mean, even if I were to say the YMCA, we don't think of Christian when we think of YMCA, but even in the title, Young Men's Christian Association. This, this is a place where Christians were to gather. Schools in our country began this way. Let me, let me read to you the purpose statement of a school, and you tell me what school you think this is. This is the purpose statement in the founding of this school. This is the purpose statement of the school. This is part of it. Quote, let every student, this was written by the original trustees of this university, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of their life and study is to know God and Jesus Christ and therefore to lay Christ at the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. That was the original purpose statement, inside of the original purpose statement of Harvard University. Hundreds of years ago, and it's deteriorated. I mean, nobody at that school would remember those words, would think to live out those words. Churches are like this. There can be such excitement at the very beginning of a church's life, but you give it enough time and enough distractions and the mission is gone or you just 
uh, assimilate with the culture around you. You just become comfortable. There's a serious pattern in evangelicalism as a whole of life-saving stations just becoming country clubs. Losing their mission, losing their purpose, losing their God-given vision for the world. And Sardis, the church that we're going to look at this morning, is no different. There's zero conflict with unbelievers. Everyone in the community is totally fine with this church. They love this church. They think highly. Non-believers think highly of this church. And in an environment that is hostile to the gospel, the church in Sardis has learned to just fit in. It's learned to fit in. It's a comatose church. It's a dead church. And as one pastor says, content with mediocrity, lacking both enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, Sardis was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. It's just benign. It's just nothing's happening. And that's why this letter, of all the letters, is the harshest, It's a very short one, but if you remember these seven letters from the lips of Jesus, these are the epistles of Christ to his church, and inside of every single one of them, we have been encouraged, we've been challenged, we've been admonished, and we've been rebuked, and so I want to let Jesus just speak this morning from his word. Let's read it together, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And look at this dead church and ask God, even in our reading of this text, are there places in our own church as a whole where we may be dead or moving towards death? And are there places as a whole in our lives on an individual level where we may be moving towards death? Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, because I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and what you have heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, because they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, that exhortation at the end of every letter is where we want to begin. Give us ears to hear. We want to hear. Uh, we, We can read We could see with our eyes, we can even hear with our ears, but there is a spiritual seeing, there's a a spiritual reading, there's a spiritual hearing that enables it to dive deep into our hearts, applied to our souls, applied to our wills. God, that's what we want. We want our wills to be woken up. We want our affections for Jesus to be woken up. God, for those in this room who are saved, who know Christ and who love him, who can say with the psalmist, they've tasted and they've seen that the Lord is good. They love him. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we would have Holy Spirit ability to to have self-reflection on where we ourselves may be dying, where there might be dead places in our hearts. And we ask by your grace, not because... We have earned it or deserve it, but we ask by your grace that you would waken us, make us alive. And God, for those in this room that do not know you, maybe like this church they claim to and they they feel like they are, they may even be recognized by others as being saved, but God, they know. God, I pray that you would do with their hearts exactly what you do in this text, that you would graciously say, you need to wake up. 
and that today would be the day of repentance, a turning away from sin, a turning to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. What we ask is impossible on our own. We ask for something that's not fleshly or temporal. We ask for something that is supernatural and eternal. It's spiritual. So, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see these things, to feel these things, to know and to do for the glory of Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, we had a bit of a break uh, during our study through Revelation uh, because we had Christmas. So we enjoyed a little bit of a break for Christmas and a little bit of a break for the new year. But now as we dive back in, let me just remind you that each letter of these seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, each letter follows the exact same pattern. Uh, There's a greeting at the beginning to the angel of the church in wherever. There's a description of Jesus. There's a declaration of what he knows. There's a criticism. There's a warning. And then there's a promise and exhortation. In this one, the exhortation and the promise are switched. So there's a there's a, a promise, and then the exhortation. A couple of weeks ago, we saw the exhortation, and then the promise. Sometimes we've seen the promise and the exhortation, as we'll see here. And then in this one, there's also a very interesting component because the criticism and the warning uh, kind of flow together, as does what Jesus knows. It kind of moves together. What he knows just goes right into the criticism. But every, every letter that we've seen has the same components, and those components are helpful as an outline for us so that when we get to a letter like this to Sardis, we can see something's a little bit different. And you'll see it as we go through. So let's start with number one, the greeting. The greeting is from Jesus to the angel of the church in Sardis, the church in Sardis. So the angel of the church, the pastor to the church, Sardis. What is Sardis? It's a city, again, on this postal route. There's a big circle. This is the next city on this postal route. Uh, right before we get to Philadelphia, which will be coming up uh, in, a, in a few weeks. This city, uh, just a, a few things by way of history, founded in 1200 BC. It's one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor. Silver and gold were first minted in Sardis. It was the first city that, to mint silver and gold. It sat at the juncture of five major highways, so it's a very popular place, Uh, a a huge city of commerce and industry. Specifically, their main industry was dyeing wool, was making uh, fabrics and garments that would be dyed in different colors. And it was built on a very high hill. Uh, It was about 1,500 feet high. And just for way of uh, comparison, the Sears Tower in Chicago is 1,450 feet high. So this cliff side where Sardis was is higher than the Sears Tower. It was the capital city of the Lydian Empire, which was a massive empire before the Persians came in and conquered. Then Greece came in and conquered Persia. Then Rome came in and conquered Greece. Uh, The Persians, when they attacked, they had no way to get into the city because the city was surrounded on three sides by these huge straight vertical cliffs. So you couldn't climb up those cliffs to get into the city, so you had to find a way to get in. And so the Persians sat and waited and waited. They tried climbing, they tried to escalate over, and they, they couldn't get uh, scaling up the walls. And so they waited, and, and one, of the, one of the soldiers in the tower in Sardis dropped his helmet out of the tower. It fell, it rolled down. And so he opened up the city gate, and he took this little pathway to get down to where his helmet was. And the people... Uh, in Persia that were watching in the Persian army, they saw what route he took and they decided, let's just follow that one back into the city. So they followed it back in, they conquered. It was destroyed in 17 AD by a massive earthquake and they tried to rebuild it, but um, even kind of the laziness that we see of the church uh, in this letter was the laziness of the city as as a whole. They started to rebuild it and they decided, we don't need to rebuild it. Um, There were two Uh, massive temples that were left half-finished, temples to Caesar and a temple to the snake goddess Asclepius. Uh, Pergamum ended up finishing that and took uh, that one themselves. Smyrna ended up taking the emperor's uh, temple. So they just, they didn't really finish what they were starting and what they were accomplishing. Some well-known people were born and raised there. Uh, Aesop's fables, uh, Aesop was from Sardis, so he's born and raised in Sardis. It was a magnificent city originally, but it declined. Um, As far as the church is concerned, in 50 to 55 AD, uh, the gospel went to Sardis and a church began to grow. But the church began to compromise. So much so that in this letter, there's really nothing good said by Jesus about this church. There's no real commendation. There's a little bit of one. 
But there's no real commendation. It's only condemnation. So this city right next to the cliffside, Sardis, once a beautiful city, now in disarray, dying as a city and dying as a church. That's the greeting to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Secondly, a description of Christ. This description of Christ, all of these come from chapter one, the vision that John saw of Jesus, and they're all relevant to the specific church that Jesus is speaking to. So here the description is, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars, uh, those are the seven angels, the seven pastors, the seven churches, the lampstands and their pastors. So I hold the churches in my hand, And I also have the seven spirits of God. That's a a reference from Zechariah chapter 4 to the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that crucial? Why is that relevant? Why does that make sense to this church? Jesus says, I hold the Holy Spirit. I can give him, I can dispense him as quickly and as powerfully as I wish. It's important for a number of reasons. Number one, the Spirit brings conviction of sin. And these people in Sardis are no longer convicted over their sin. So Jesus says, I have the antidote to your uh, apathy. I have the antidote. I can give you the Holy Spirit, and he will convict you. I also have the Holy Spirit who will give you power. I have the Holy Spirit who can give you effectiveness in evangelism. They have just compromised with the culture. They've just grown apathetic to the gospel. They're dead, and so they're not interacting with the culture in a way that they're bringing the gospel to bear in their lives. So Jesus says, I have the Spirit who will give you power. Remember Matthew 28, uh, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth, I'm, I'm, I'm there. You take the gospel, I'm with you, even to the end of the age, I'm here with you, and I'm going to send my Spirit to you as you go and do the work of the gospel ministry. There's also purity. The Holy Spirit brings purity. The Holy Spirit brings purity. And what Sardis desperately needs, as we're going to see, is a purification. They have become carnal in their living with the other people in the city. They've just begun to look like the city. They look exactly like non-believers, and so they need purification. And finally, the reason why it's important that Jesus holds the Spirit and can give Him at any moment is because the Spirit is the one who brings regeneration. Or another way to say it is the Spirit gives life. So if we're talking about a dead church, the antidote to that is the Spirit who can give life. The Spirit can give life. And if you're dead here this morning, if you are spiritually dead, your only hope is for the Holy Spirit to give life. Your only hope is for the Holy Spirit to give you life spiritually. So, the description of Christ. I have in one hand the churches and the pastors. I have in the other hand, so to speak, the Holy Spirit that I can send. And it's almost as if he's saying, if you would just align yourself with the work of the gospel, if you would just turn, do the five things that he's going to command them to do, I can bring these two together. You can be vibrant again. But as it is right now, there's no spiritual influence in that church. Number three. Let's look at the declaration of what Christ knows. We have the greeting, which is uh, the city of Sardis. We have the description of Christ, which is holding the churches, the pastors, and holding the Spirit that He can give, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. But number three, the declaration of what Christ knows. And what I want to do is I want to give you number three and four together because the declaration of what Christ knows is the criticism. Notice In the middle of verse 1, I know your deeds. Now, we've seen that construction every single letter. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And normally, Jesus will go on to say, this is what you've done well. In fact, just go back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 2, to the church in, in Ephesus, I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate evil men. You put those to the test who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So a lot of really good things. I know your deeds, and then there's always a commendation that follows. This is what I'm commending you for. That's why this letter is so jarring. That's why it doesn't quite follow that formula Because the declaration of what Christ knows is the criticism. Notice, I know your deeds that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. I know your deeds that you have a name, you have a reputation. Name is a reputation. You have a reputation in your culture. You have a reputation in your community. 
And the reputation from the non-believers in your community is that is a vibrant church. That's the church to go to. It's big. It's amazing. They have the best music. They have the best preaching. They have the best everything. We love that church. The world is saying, in Sardis, the world is saying we love that church. You have a name, and that reputation is that you are alive. Anyone who is anybody is going to that church. But you're actually dead. So there's no commendation. Jesus just goes straight to what I know is that there's criticism. So three and four kind of go together. What I know is that though people think you're alive, you're actually dead. Literally in the Greek, you have a name that you're alive and you're dead. You have a name that you're alive and you're dead. Who cares about the reputation you have? You're dead. You're dead. What they actually think that they have going for them, that they have a name in their community, is what Jesus condemns them for. Maybe they even named their church Living Church or New Life Church. But there's no love for Christ in this church, so they're dead. They have a huge church. It's got a great reputation in the community. And though they think that they are alive, they're dead. Alive, that, that Greek word is not the normal word for physical life. It would be bios, that we have life given to us physically. It's a different Greek word, zao, that means uh, spiritual life. Uh, So people think that you have spiritual life. People around you think, you think that you have spiritual life, but you're spiritually dead. Why are they spiritually dead? There's three main reasons why we know that this church is spiritually dead. Number one, they're carnal. Let me just give you three C's. Number one, they're carnal. They live in sin. Herodotus, the Greek historian, said that the citizens of Sardis had a reputation for lax moral standards and open licentiousness, and the church lived just like them. So lax moral standards and open licentiousness, involved in uh, temple prostitution and immorality, involved in all forms of idolatry and immorality. They were carnal, and they thought that's okay. I can be carnal, I can live in my flesh, I can live for sin, I can live for myself, and I can still be saved. I'm alive, and it's totally fine to live in sin. They're carnal. The second reason why they are dead is because they're complacent. They're complacent. This church had become lethargic about the demands of their faith, about the demands of the gospel, especially in the midst of a pagan culture. This church is dying because of apathy and indifference. They're just complacent. Who cares? We don't need to engage with the culture. We just do our thing, let them do their things. We start to look like them. We're not going to engage them with the gospel. And that leads to number three. The third reason why they're dead is they are compromising. They're carnal, they're complacent, and they're compromising. The struggle against pagan influence and worldly viewpoints has been completely lost. That whole idea of tolerance, they don't care about tolerance because they look exactly like the world. They don't have to tolerate the world. They are the world. The Christians have just given up the fight. They're not reaching the world for Jesus. They've lost their zeal. They've compromised with the world. And so now they are terminally ill. One pastor says it this way, when peace with the sinful culture is the ultimate aim to which everything else yields, there can be no definitive witness for Jesus. If your goal is to have peace with the world, then you are an enemy of Christ. You cannot love both of those things. They're mutually exclusive. So if I can say it this way, Sardis is a perfect model of nominal Christianity. It's a perfect model of nominal, nominal coming from the word for name. They are Christians in name only. Uh, Another way we could say that is they are the perfect example of inoffensive Christianity. The world thinks they're totally fine. If the world thinks that our church is totally fine, there's something wrong with our church. Now, we we don't go out and purposely try to be offensive to people. This is in that whole seeker-sensitive question, right? Uh, We're not not seeker-sensitive as a church, bowing to to the wills and and wishes of the community around us to try and bring them into church. We're also not seeker-antagonistic, right? We're not like, we don't want anybody wanting the Bible or Jesus, right? We want people to come in through these doors and to hear the gospel, and we want them to be loved by the love of Jesus Christ. We want them to, to cling to Christ, 
but that necessitates us preaching the gospel and the good news of the gospel demands that the bad news be shared. Even as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the the gospel, one of the reasons why we struggle to keep preaching it to ourselves is because it's offensive. It reminds us how broken and messed up we are. And in our pride, we just, we don't want to remind ourselves of that. We want to remind ourselves we're doing really well. Well, this church thinks that they're doing very well. By the way, this isn't a small church with aged members. Right? This isn't dead in a physical sense of small, dwindling numbers with older members. No, this is a large church. This church is large, it's vibrant, it has a reputation in the community, but their perception of themselves is not what's true. One pastor says it this way, death is a spiritual state which the undiscriminating may mistake for life. Death is the spiritual state which the undiscriminating may mistake for life. Notice how the spiritual condition of this church is not easily known. There's massive implications here. Don't don't be hasty in your judgment of churches or of people. Don't judge too quickly based off of outward appearance. This church looks like it's alive, but it's dead. There are churches that look like they're dead, but they're alive. Also, our reputation, another implication is that our reputation is no guarantee of the true inward character of what's going on. You might have a great reputation with people around you, but before God, you might be dead. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here as the church as a whole and individually as well. We dare not seek man's approval around us and think we're okay. If we please man but we displease God, it really doesn't matter that we've pleased man. We need to please God. And if we please God and we displease man, that's okay. Again, we don't want to be purposefully offensive. But we don't want to go to the nominal Christianity category. What are the danger signs that a church is dying, is headed this direction? One pastor says, A church is in danger when it is content to rest on its past laurels when it's more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality, when it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through the preaching of the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it's more concerned with what men think than what God thinks, when it's more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than with the Word of God, or when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the word of God himself. No matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its building, no matter what its status in the community, such a church, having denied the only source of spiritual life, is dead. So what Christ knows is his criticism of this church. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. That necessitates the question, How do we get back to life? How do we wake up? How do we get life? How do we follow Christ? And the beauty of this letter is Jesus does not say, you're dead, therefore I'm writing you off. If you are here this morning and you are convicted by the Holy Spirit that you yourself are dead in certain areas or maybe spiritually altogether, you're dead. You have not woken up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is hope for you. Because Jesus does not say, you're dead, that's it, no hope. He says, let me give you the path to follow. And he gives us five commands. And this falls under the warnings in this passage, the warnings. So we've seen the greeting, we've seen a description of Christ, we have a declaration of what he knows, we have the criticism, those are the same, so three and four kind of go together. Number five, the warning. The warning is in verse two, and it goes almost all the way through the rest of this passage. And the warning, in the warning, you have five gracious commands of God, five amazingly gracious and kind commands of God to wake up and to have life. Number one, Jesus says, wake up. This is the warning. Wake up. Number one, wake up. This is the first command in a series of five in verse two. Wake up. 
This church was unconcerned about their spiritual condition, so they need to wake up. This is what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14 says. Paul says, you need to awake, O sleeper. You're spiritually sleeping, and you need to wake yourself up. This is what Christian said as he's walking on the road in Pilgrim's Progress. He sees people that are sleeping, that are tired. Just give us a little bit more rest. And he says, no, wake up. Wake up. Flee from the wrath to come. Wake up. And then, no, just a few more minutes, just a few more moments. Let us sleep. So Jesus says, wake up. Literally, in the tense that it's in, it's be constantly awake, be constantly alert. Don't ever fall asleep again. This is a call to reverse the attitude of this church. The attitude is just one of complacency. Who cares? Apathy. We're fine. But the congregation must be alerted to the seriousness of the situation. So Jesus says, command number one, wake up. Command number two, strengthen. Strengthen the things that remain Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. So again, there's hope here. There's a little bit of a commendation here. You have things that are going out, but you can strengthen them. You don't have to let them die. Strengthen. It's in a tense that means do it now. Don't wait another moment. Do it now. Strengthen now. Don't let it die. It's slowly dying. Don't let it die. And he says, do it now because I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. There's work left for you to do. The work of killing sin, the work of going into a community with evangelism, there's work for you left to do. So do it now. It hasn't been completed yet. But again, there's beauty in this that there's hope. There's, there's a commendation to this dead church. And he's going to go on to say there's people in this church that aren't dead. So strengthen what remains. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Number three. So remember, verse three. Command number three is in verse three. So remember what you have received and heard. Remember. Remember what they have received. My Bible says what you have received. Literally, it's remember how you received what you have been given. Remember how you received it. What have they been given? They've been given the book of Revelation that they're reading in their church. They've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been given sections of the New Testament. They've been given the Old Testament but they've been given Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to live, remember how you first heard it. Remember how you first heard it. Yes, what? You need to know what you're listening to and what you're remembering. But I love how Jesus says, remember how you received it. If you're here this morning and you, you know Jesus Christ and you are clinging to hope in Him for eternal life, not trusting in yourselves. And you see, man, there's places in my life that I am spiritually dead. There's places where I have grown apathetic, where I'm compromising. Jesus would say to us the exact same thing he said to this church. Remember how you received the gospel. Do you remember how you received it? This is similar to what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. Go back to your first love. Remember how you received the gospel? Do you remember when you were told by someone, by some amazingly gracious act of God that somebody opened their mouth to proclaim the gospel to you and you were told that all that guilt and all that shame and all that sin that weighed heavy upon you that you felt there's no way I can get rid of this and I'm hopeless and you're in despair and you were told by somebody that somebody loves you so much that they came to earth to take that burden off you, to deal with your guilt, to deal with your shame, to deal with your sin, to remove it as far as the east is from the west. You never have to look at it ever again. It's gone, it's paid for and now you can be in a reconciled relationship with God. Do you remember how you first experienced that? It was a winter camp. It was a summer camp. It was a long series of messages, years and years and years under the same preaching. And then all of a sudden it hits you. Preaching is like that, right? Not every sermon is just the most amazing sermon that's ever been preached. Preaching is like eating meals. If I were to ask you, what did you eat on December 13th for lunch? You won't remember. I don't remember. But I can tell you this, that meal kept you alive. What did I preach on five months ago? I don't remember. I have to go look at my notes. But I know that the, these sermons keep us alive. As we open the, the Word of God and we dive in together, we are reminded of how amazing Jesus is. And so Jesus says, remember, go back. Remember how you received it. You remember when you, you loved, you cherished the fact 
that now that you're a Christian, you look and act weird to the world. Do you remember that? Remember there was a song by a Christian band called Crazy. Just talks about the, the world around us must look at us and think we're crazy. It starts with the gospel, say it's crazy that Jesus would love us, and then the world thinks we're crazy because we love him. You remember when that was a badge of honor? And you're like, I love Jesus. And people are like, you're weird. And you're like, this is awesome. And then you, you grow up and time happens and you lose some friends and you realize, mm, maybe I won't just start with I love Jesus. And you start to hide that. And in conversations, you wait. And slowly but surely, you move into apathy, compromise, or maybe you once took a stand and said, oh, I'm not going to do that. Now you're laughing. Jesus says, remember. Remember. Go back. Remember the delight. Remember the passion. Remember the zeal. Go back. Remember. Now this command requires work. It requires intensity. It requires thoughtfulness. But this will wake you up if you remember. The people in Sardis, which I personally don't know how to call them. Are they the sardines? I don't know how to call them, but the people in Sardis, we'll call them the sardines. They had forgotten. And what they are remembering in their past laurels, as that pastor said, is, is just what they have done, who they are, and how they've impacted people around them. They don't remember how Jesus has loved them and given himself for them. So Jesus says, remember. Number one, wake up. Number two, strengthen what remains. Number three, remember. Number four, command number four under this warning. Remember what you've received and heard and keep. Keep is the fourth command. Keep it. Keep it. Literally, the word is guard it. Like a, a prisoner being guarded by a soldier or a, a soldier standing guard at a position. And this, this word for guard, this word ha, would have hit the, the church in Sardis. It would have, there's an irony in this. Because if you remember, again, go back to the Persians. Cyrus was trying to conquer this city. This city, uh, surrounded by three sides of just cliffs. Cyrus said, how are we going to get in? Sardis only put up guards around the front, not on the back sides where the cliffs are, only on the front. Because nobody's going to come up that cliff. So Cyrus decided, let's try. So he got like some Cirque du Soleil guy to go flip up all the way up. said it took two days. He had to stop halfway up and just kind of hang out there and wait. And then when it was night again, he went back up. And he walked, he climbed his way up, climbed over the wall, made his way into the city, got to where the gate was, unlocked it, and then said, back down the cliff to the Persian army, hey, we can go up now because I've unlocked the gate. I know how to get in. One historian said that if there had been a child standing on the wall of the city of Sardis, the child could have just gone, no. A child could have guarded this city. And yet because no one was there to guard it, they were able to get in, then they found that pathway where the, the guy had lost his helmet, they went up that pathway, they went in the gate, and then they destroyed the city. So that word guard, Jesus is saying, your city fails to guard anything, right? The, the Lydians lost it to the Persians. By the way, when Greece came in, they looked at, at the Persian Empire owning the city, and they said, how are we going to get in? They tried the exact same thing. They found the exact same route. They went up the cliff. They went because Persia decided, we're not going to guard that. Nobody is going to be able to make it. Only that crazy Cirque du Soleil guy is going to be able to make it in. Nobody else is going to make it in. And Greece conquered the exact same way. Lydian Empire died because they didn't guard the, the backside of this city. Persia lost it because they didn't guard. Greece lost it because they didn't guard. So Jesus says, you have a pattern of not guarding your city and your church and your spiritual life. So keep it. Guard. Guard the gospel. How do you guard the gospel? The best way to guard the gospel is by obeying the gospel. You guard the gospel by obeying the gospel. And the most obedient thing you can do in obeying the gospel is live it out with others. Uh, share it. Evangelize. So he says, keep it. Guard it. Don't let it go. Don't let it die. Don't let someone conquer it. 
The birds, like Jesus talks about in the the parable of the soils, the birds are trying to swoop in and take the seed. The, The thorns are trying to choke it out. The rocky soil are trying to keep it from growing. Guard it. Get the rocks out. Get the the thorns away. Get the birds. Shoo the birds away. Do anything in your power to guard the gospel. Wake up, number one. Strengthen what remains, number two. Remember what, what literally how you have received the gospel and keep it. And finally, after he says all of that, repent. The fifth command. Very easy. You know what you need to do. Now do it. Right now. Turn away from complacency. Turn right now. Five commands in this warning. And he says, therefore, if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief. Robbers use force. Thieves use stealth. I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come when you don't even know it. I'm going to be a a stealthy thief that's going to walk in. You don't even know. This, by the way, the thief that comes in the night is not the second coming. There's times where Jesus says that. This isn't a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to a specific conditional coming of Christ to a specific conditional people group, not the church as a whole or the world as a whole. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to show up like those soldiers showed up. You didn't even know. You didn't guard for it, and all of a sudden your city's under attack. You had no idea that it was going to happen. That's how I'm going to show up. You're not going to know when. So there's a warning After the criticism, you're dead, so here's the warning. Wake up, strengthen. You need to keep these things. You need to remember. You need to keep the gospel, and you need to repent. I wonder for you, if you were hooked up to a spiritual EKG, what would it show? Are you still spiritually eating food? When was the last spiritual meal you had? Are you working out spiritually? Or have your muscles atrophied? Do you rest enough spiritually? Do you get enough spiritual sleep when you need it? Lost love for evangelism and for holiness leads to spiritual apathy. So Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Don't lose your love for evangelism. Don't lose your love for holiness. Verse 4, but, this is, again, a little bit of a commendation You do have a few people, literally the the word is names. You have a few names in your church who have not soiled their garments. They've not gotten dirty with the world around them. This is a beautiful promise. Jesus says, you're a massive megachurch that's totally spiritually dead. There are people in there that are alive. There's people there that are alive, and I know them by name. Imagine if you're sitting there in the church in Sardis, the pastor's reading this church to the congregation, and you're hearing this, you're spiritually dead, you need to wake up and you're thinking, I'm trying, I'm not like my friends that are friends with the world, I'm not, I'm not like them, I'm not apathetic, I'm not carnal, I'm, I'm fighting. And you think, I just got lumped in with everybody else. Jesus just called me dead. Jesus says, no, I know your name. I know your name. Just because the church is dead doesn't mean that I don't know you by name and I'm not going to take you out. Just because I might take out the whole church. You are my people. And I know you. You haven't sold your garments. And he says, they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. They will walk with me in white because they are worthy. This does not mean that they have worthiness inside themselves to save themselves. This is, you could write in there, for sake of time, we can't turn there. Ephesians chapter 4 has a very good list of things to be involved in as a believer, kindness, compassion, things not to be involved in as a believer, malice, envy, strife, disunity. And Paul says above all of those things, these two big lists that Paul gives in Ephesians 4, he says, number one, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's what Jesus is saying here. They're walking in a manner worthy. They're not perfect. They're walking in a manner worthy. And then in the middle of that list in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Walk as believers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Walk as those who are being led by Him, purified by Him. So this worthiness is not they're perfect and they've 
they become holy because of who they are. No, this worthiness is because of the gospel and the power of the gospel in their lives and the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. They're walking in a manner worthy of their calling. They're walking in holiness, in sanctification. They're growing. And because of that, they're going to walk with Christ in white. And this leads us in verse 5 to the promise. The promise. Number 6 in our outline. We have the greeting. We have the description of Christ. We have a declaration of what He knows. We have the criticism. We have the warning. Now, number 6, we have a promise. And then we'll end very quickly with the exhortation. Number 6, the promise. The promise. There's three promises that are just unbelievable. I mean, they truly are staggering. Three promises that are given in verse 5 to the overcomer. That's our word in the Greek, uh, Nico, where we get Nike, the one who's the, vic- the victor, the one who conquers. They will get three things, and we could put them into three headings. They'll get, number one, perfection. They'll get, number two, security. And number three, they'll get acceptance. They'll get perfection, security, and acceptance. First, Jesus says they will get, the overcomers will get perfection. They will be clothed in white garments. They will be clothed. That's, that's passive. We stand there and Jesus clothes us. As we sang, faultless to stand before the throne. Blameless, with no sin on our record. This is not because of who we are. This is because of Christ and his righteousness in our place. This is Matthew 22. You remember the the parable of that wedding feast? Come to the wedding. I've given you clothes. You've got to show up in a certain attire. And there are people that say, I can show up in my attire. I don't need to wear the, the white garments of the wedding feast. And the bouncer at the feast says, no, you're not allowed in. You can't get in because you're not wearing the right clothes. He said, I, I had the clothes. They were offered to you, but you didn't put them on. Jesus says, and I love this promise, those who are walking in a manner worthy of their calling on earth, they're fighting against sin, they're fighting for holiness, those who are doing that will one day in heaven be given perfection. We talk a lot in evangelism. What you love the most is what you're going to get in eternity. If you love Jesus and you hate sin, and you're still living in it, right? You still you know the power that sin has. It's been broken, but it has not been completely removed. Spurgeon used to say, Noah never fell outside of the ark. He never fell out of the ark. But Noah fell, fell a lot in the ark, right? You and I as believers, we're falling a lot, but we're never falling out of the ark, right? The, the salvation that God has given us, we're falling a lot in this ark. So Jesus says, if you love me and you're fighting against sin, and you're fighting for holiness, then one day you're going to get what you've always wanted. No more sin in between you and me. No more fight against sin. How how often do we as believers say, man, I just want to be done fighting my sinfulness. Guys, one day you're going to get it. One day you're going to get that. The fight will be gone. If you're a non-believer and you love sin and there is no fight there, one day you're going to get that. You're going to get a place where just only sin dwells and God's punishment for sin dwells. This is where non-believers say, wait, you, you think I'm going to hell? And my question is, why would you want to be in heaven? You love your sin. And heaven is a place where sin does not exist. So what you love the most wouldn't exist if you went to heaven. And you hate God. And all we do in heaven is praise God and glorify Him. So Jesus says here, to the overcomer, to the one who's fighting, not perfection, but progression, you're fighting in progress, to that one I will finally give perfection. I'll give you everything your heart has always wanted. Sin no more, perfection. And the way he does that is dipping our sinfulness in his blood and pulling out that garment that's now white as snow. That's one of the coolest analogies in the Bible. The Bible has three main illustrations or metaphors for justification. One is judicial, that we owe a debt that we couldn't pay and Jesus pays the money and not only pays our debt, but then gives us all of his money, gives us every uh, dime that he has so that we are now billionaires in his sight, righteous uh, and perfect. The second metaphor is um, uh, a judicial sense. First is financial, I think. Uh, I said that incorrectly. First is financial. Second is a judicial sense, right? We're standing before a lawyer, a judge. We're pleading our case. I'm guilty, but will you have mercy? And the judge brings that gavel down and says, not only are you forgiven, but the righteousness of Christ is now in your record, in your account. 
We have a beautiful financial metaphor. We have a beautiful judicial metaphor. And then there's clothing metaphors in the Bible for justification, that our dirty rags are taken away and Jesus cleanses them and gives us his own. We have perfection that will be given to us, promised. Secondly, security is promised to us. Security is promised. Not only are we given perfection with these white garments. Number two, security. I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will not erase his name. This does not mean that it's possible for a name to be erased. This is simply saying at face value what it's saying. You're not going to have your name ever erased. This is a figure of speech. If you want the word, it's a litotes. And it's affirming what's expressed by the negative of the contrary of what's being expressed. So to say in a positive way, what Jesus is saying is, the overcomer will receive all the blessings received with having your name in the book of life. You'll get everything that you get with having your name in the book of life, and it's never going to go away. You're going to get it all. If salvation were dependent upon a believer's ability to persevere, then your name wouldn't need to be in the book to begin with, right? Your name needs to be in that book because your name being in that book means you're going to get safely home. If you, we are trying to get our name into that book by our own good works, no names are in that book. So we get perfection, we get security, and we get acceptance. I will not erase his name from the book of life. And finally in verse six or verse 5, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I will confess his name. This is Matthew chapter 10. This is 2 Timothy. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. This church in Sardis was not acknowledging their, their heavenly Father. They're not acknowledging their Savior. They're saying, we don't need to engage the culture. And Jesus says, if you stand up for Christ, I will also stand up for you on that last day. Why are the angels there? They're there to remind us of grace. C.S. Lewis said, It costs God nothing, so far as we know, to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills costs him crucifixion. There was no redemptive plan for the fallen angels. They didn't have, there didn't have to be one because they didn't, uh, the, the godly angels, the holy angels, didn't fall. So he says, I'm going to give you perfection, I'm going to give you security, and I'm going to accept you into heaven. Therefore, finally, the exhortation. He who has a, an ear to hear, let him hear. Let him hear. What about you? This whole sermon is a plea against nominal Christianity. Do you claim the name of Christ, but claim it in vain, wear it in vain? Are there places in your own heart, in your own life, where you are dying? Maybe you look good on the outside. You look full, vibrant, alive, but you're dead. Maybe there's places in your life where you're carnal, complacent, or compromising. If you see spiritual death in your own heart today, turn from it. Wake up. Strengthen the things that are there that are growing. Remember how you receive the gospel. Guard it with your life and repent. But the only way that we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me pray, and then we will sing, asking the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts. God, we thank you for... This passage that warns us, that exhorts us to do what you exhorted the church in Sardis to do, to wake up. God, wake us up. May your spirit, the living breath of God, breathe new life now. We are willing. Make it so by the power of Jesus and the word of God and the gracious spirit that he gives. 